Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead, and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And what you're about to listen to was a sermon that was preached at our Wednesday night gathering from 6.30 to 8.30 with our students. So I hope that this sermon is encouraging and a blessing to you today. Thanks for listening. How you guys doing? How are the high schoolers here? Is all right? You're doing well? Yeah, enjoying high school. And high school is a hard season of life. Um, I went through a lot of change in high school. A lot changed. I went from a 98-pound, 4-foot-10 freshman to a uh, probably 5'11 senior. So a lot changed, right? A lot changes in, in the history of high school. And, and it's hard. <laughs> what? Just a little bit more. I wrestled 98s. In my prime, Matthew, I could probably take you out So you know, in wrestling. Well, I went through a lot of change. All of you, you guys are, you know, it's a thing called puberty. Everyone goes through it, right? It's a real change that takes place. It's kind of awkward, but it's kind of happened. You got to go from being a little boy to a man and a little girl to a woman. And it's a real change that takes place. Um, We live in a society that is always searching for change. And why is that? People want, actually people are stuck in their ways, but in in, in a sense, everyone is longing for something better or longing to be a better version of themselves or are wanting to change. Every New Year's resolution, we get this. What are some things in my life that I need to change to be a better person? Everyone's looking for it. People know that there's real suffering and real things that are happening on in our culture right now. And I think of the George Floyd riots and, and uh, the social justice movement, the woke movement. And they see problems and they say, we need change. And so the, the way in which we're going to change everything is by literally burning everything to the ground. <laughs> and uh, just starting fresh and actually have no solution. It's, it's just borrowed from Marx and they... And, and so, but, but they say that the way that we change people is we need to legislate. We need new policy. We need new structures. We need new institutions. And that will bring about the change that we need. Okay? That's on a big societal level. Some people are like, I want to be a better version of myself. And so the, the world says, if you want to change, what you need to do is not look outside of yourself to be someone else. You need to look inward. You need to turn inward to find your true authentic self and to change by looking inward. And then you will find satisfaction. Then you'll find salvation. Or, I mean, what are some other uh, uh, ways that people are searching for change? We, we think of, I think of the simple, you know, Snapchat and Instagram, where they have these filters that change your appearance. And then you have surgeries that actually can take place in order to alter or change your appearance. And it goes so far to um, even the LGBTQ plus movement where they try to change the biological sex, which is absolutely impossible. There's only male and female. But in a, in a foolish world, in a foolish society that has chosen to make man God, they try to change their outward appearance to be someone that they think that they are when they're really not. Everyone's searching for change. But they can't seem to find it, whether it's in a diet, whether it's in a new fad, a new trend, some new makeup that you get, a new fashion line. And, um, I, 
new friends, a new location, a new job, change, right? If I just get done with school, or if I just get this job, or if I just get in a relationship, then I'll change. Everyone's searching for change, but it seems like what the world has to offer doesn't really last. It's only temporary. In fact, the only thing that does not change is that we will die, and we will stand before God. How can we experience real change? Every single religion says that we'll offer real change, but I believe that the Christianity is the only true religion who serves the only true God. All these other false religions, they serve demonic gods. That can, and Christianity is the only religion that actually offers real life, eternal, permanent, experiential, and radical change. And that change comes through the power of the Holy Spirit that when he comes in your life, after when, when you hear the good news, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And the Holy Spirit you, he opens your eyes to see the truth, to see Jesus for who he is and comes into your life. He will change you. You see uh, Ezekiel 36. He will give you a new heart, a new desire. Your old desire was for sin. <laughs> but he changes you from the inside out. Everything in our culture is working from the outside in. But the gospel says, no, 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 don't turn inward, turn outward. And that's where you will find real change. And when the Holy Spirit comes in, that moment of regeneration, a new birth, what happens, the moment the Holy Spirit does that, what happens next is what is called conversion. Conversion. And that's our topic tonight. We're talking about the doctrine of conversion. We talked about the new birth. John 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless you're born from above, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. And so when the Holy Spirit takes dead sinners and makes them alive, the moment that their eyes open and the next step that they take is what is called conversion. If regeneration, we are passive, we are dead, and the Holy Spirit makes us alive. Conversion, we are active. We have a responsibility. Because we see that in the text. Some of you are like, wait, is salvation all of grace? Yes. But is there human responsibility? Absolutely. Yes. Is God sovereign over salvation? Yes. Does man have responsibility? Yes. <laughs> the scripture teaches that. And your responsibility, which doesn't merit salvation, but it's God working through you in real time. When I was in eighth grade, when, I, when the Holy Spirit came into my life, I repented and believed in Jesus Christ. And it wasn't just me. It was the Holy Spirit working through me so that I can't praise because faith is a gift and repentance is a gift. But it is absolutely necessary. It, it, it does not make sense to say that the Holy Spirit has made me alive Yet you have, you have not changed. You're still the caterpillar stuck in the cocoon. You have not changed into a new creation, right? A real change that takes place. And so I got three points. We're going to look at conversion and then the two marks of conversion, okay? What is conversion? What is this change that the Bible talks about? Well, that is what is called conversion. Conversion is the human response to the gospel. It's the human response to the gospel consisting of repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. So it is a re human response that every single one of you are called by God to respond to Jesus. Jesus' first sermon, Mark 1.15, he says, 
The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That is a command. When Peter preaches on Pentecost, his famous sermon, at the very end he says, Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Two commands that you are called to do. And in every sermon we see, repent and be baptized, or believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So conversion is the human response to the gospel consisting of repentance and faith. Now, does our repentance and faith contribute to our salvation? No, it doesn't. We don't merit it. We don't earn it so that we could pat ourselves on the back. The reason why we respond in the first place is because the Holy Spirit has brought conviction. The Holy Spirit has awakened us. But you are still called. And many of you that are saved, you experience this. This is an experiential thing. You went through this. And in a moment when the Holy Spirit opened your eyes, whether it was through your dad or your mom saying, do you believe in Jesus? Or through the preacher or through the sermon. In that moment, you experience conversion. And conversion can be gradual as well. So conversion is the human response. We're talking about if if man, if we were passive in our new birth, right? Just like you were passive when you were born the first time, right? You didn't contribute anything. But then what is the response to that new birth? When the baby comes out, what's the first thing it does? It cries, right? It's active, right? The baby's active. It's alive. And it responds, new life, through crying, right? So conversion is the necessary and inevitable and real change that takes place in a sinner's life the moment the Holy Spirit makes them alive. I think of the woman Lydia in Acts 16, Paul comes and finds her, and it says that the Lord opened her heart to receive the teaching of Paul. And what did she do? She believed. And then she was baptized. That's conversion, the belief, the, the, the baptism, the, the response. Right? In regeneration, we were passive. We were like Lazarus, dead in our sins, or the birth. In conversion, we are active. This activity doesn't merit salvation, doesn't earn salvation, but it is the response to salvation. And so every single believer is called to repent and believe. Think about all these. I could give you so many examples in Scripture. Remember when, you know, remember Saul, not the king, but the man who was persecuting Christians in the New Testament? What was he doing? He's binding up Christians. He was putting them to death. He oversaw the the stoning of Stephen, even. He was a wicked man. How did God save him? Remember in Acts 9, he's on the road to Damascus. He's on his high horse and God knocks him off his high horse. Right? Paul doesn't, or Saul doesn't ask the Lord to come into his heart. God just comes. God's sovereignty, right? Comes and saves him. But he still repents and believes on Jesus Christ. That happened to Saul. I think of, I already mentioned Lazarus. He was dead, right? But, and Jesus said, come forth. It's like the call of the gospel. He made him alive. And then he still had to come forth and he came out, right? So the making alive, that's the new birth. And then the coming out, that's conversion. We see this in John 11. The moment when God saved me in eighth grade, I thought I was a believer. Sitting at summer camp, there's worship going on. I see all these, and from my mind, these dirty, rotten sinners that, are, that I knew. I went to public school, so I knew. And they were at camp. They are worshiping God. And they're like, I'm like, why? Why do they have so much joy? The Holy Spirit brought this conviction. Why do they have joy and I don't? Why are they worshiping but I am not? 
Did I just come up with that thought? (laughs) Am I going to take credit for that thought? No. The Holy Spirit was bringing conviction. And in that moment, I realized I am not a Christian. I have not undergone conversion. I have not truly trusted in Jesus Christ. I have not repented of my sin. And in that moment, (laughs) through some counsel of my life group leader, or my life group leader at the time, he actually, uh, I was like, I don't, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm not a Christian. And, you know, you would expect him to say, you know, say this prayer or walk down this aisle, sign this card, all these things. You know what he told me? He said, I want you to go out and I want you to go into the woods. We were out camping. It was a summer camp. And seek the Lord. I'm like, all right. I found a spot where no one was and I cried out to the Lord. Do I take credit for my crying out? No. Lord, the Holy Spirit worked that in me, but it was still me crying out to the Lord, confessing my sin, repenting of it, and turning to Him and turning to Jesus by faith. Some of you have similar conversion stories. Some of you, it's more gradual. You don't know the exact moment, but it's gradual, and you've seen a real change. That's conversion. And so my question is, have you been converted to Jesus Christ? Have you experienced this change? Well, how do I know, you might ask? What are the marks? How, how are we to respond? How do I know I have this real change? Well, like I've already mentioned, there's two marks, and you need both of them. You can't have one without the other. And the first mark of true conversion, because there's such thing as false conversion, the first thing is faith. 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 Look to Jesus. That's my point. Faith. Look to Jesus. What is faith? I mean, we hear that term all the time and sometimes we don't even know how to define it. What is faith? Is it a feeling? Is it blind faith? Like I'm just, I gotta have just blind faith. I'm just gonna walk blindfolded through life and I'm gonna jump off this cliff and just hope someone, no, you're gonna hit the bottom of the cliff and you're gonna hit the ground, right? It's not blind. It's not a feeling. Faith is not faithfulness either. It's not obedience, Faith is a gift from God by which you do three things. It consists of three parts, and it spells cat with a K. You cat lovers will love this, okay? The first is that the three aspects of true saving faith are knowledge, assent or agreeing. So assent, I assent to that truth, and trust. Okay, so faith is a gift from God where not only you have knowledge of the gospel or assent or agree with the gospel, but you personally trust in Jesus Christ as your own redeemer. You to to believe is to acknowledge as an established fact. That's the definition. So let's break this down. Knowledge. With faith, there is content, right? There's content that you believe. It's not a feeling, right? There's specific content. So what is the content or the knowledge that you need to know in order to come to, to be saved? What is it? It's the good news of Jesus Christ, that he lived, died, and resurrected from the dead for you, for sinners, to save you. So you have to know that knowledge. I've preached that to you multiple times. You know that knowledge. Then you have to agree with it. So it's like, yeah, okay. Do I agree with the fact that Jesus is Lord, that he did live, that he did die, that he did resurrect from the dead, that he did ascend to heaven? Do I agree with that? Yes, I agree with that. That is assent. So I 
You have to have knowledge. That's the intellect in our mind and assent. I'm going to, in my will, agree with that. I'm going to agree with the truth of the good news. But that's not enough, right? If you have those two things, but not the third, then you're no different than the demons. Whoa, strong words there. But James 2.10, or not 2.10, uh, I forget the exact quote, or the exact paraphrase. What am I trying to say? Verse, reference, there we go. But it says, even the demons believe and they shudder. See, even Satan has a knowledge of the gospel. He knows the good news of Jesus. He knows who Jesus is. Even when Jesus would come and approach someone that's demon-possessed, the demon would speak out and say, we know that you're the Holy One sent from God. You can read that in Mark. They know who Jesus is. They know that he's the king. They know that he's the savior. They agree with that. So they have knowledge and they assent. But are they saved? No. Right? They're not. So most people, and this is where false conversion happens, and I I fear this for some of you here growing up in the church. You have a knowledge. You may agree with it because your parents do, because your pastor does, but you're missing the third and most important aspect, which is personal trust. You have not placed your trust and confidence and rest in Jesus so most people start, stop there with the knowledge and the scent, but that leads to a false or temporary conversion. How many people have I witnessed over the year go to camp, hear the good news of the gospel, seem like they respond, but then they fall away? It's because they had knowledge, they assent, they agreed, they maybe had an experience, but they did not personally trust in Jesus. I think of Judas, right? Judas knew who Jesus was. He had knowledge, he assented, but he did not trust in Jesus. Many people know the good news, they agree, but they're missing the most important aspect, trust. For example, let's see if, if there's an empty chair up here. Mm. Alex, for the sake of the illustration, can I just use your chair real quick? All right. Alex, I'm going to ask you a question. All right, since you're right here. You can stay right here. Yeah, you're good. All right. All right. So you see that chair right there. And so I want to ask you a question, Alex. Do you believe, do you believe that this chair is able to hold you? Yes. That is a chair, right? Yes. It's a strong and sturdy chair. Well, it's a chair. It's a chair. So you have knowledge that it's a chair. It has, it has, you know, you know what it is. Now, do you agree that if you were to sit in that, that it would hold your weight? Yep. Yep. You agree with that? Okay. So you have knowledge and you have assent. Um, <clears throat> well, is that chair supporting you right now? Supporting your weight? No, it's not. Well, why isn't it? I'm not sending it. Exactly. Exactly. Some people have knowledge. They have a sense. But you need to sit in the chair. So go for it, man. There you go. Oh, no. Boom. Trust. Okay. There you go. You got to sit. And that's the last point, trust. It's personal trust in Jesus for your salvation. Not just trust that God can save others, but That Christ came to save you, specifically. Personal trust. It's trust in an object. And who is the object of our personal trust? It's Jesus, right? And so faith, true saving faith, isn't just a feeling or isn't just knowledge and assent, but it's trust in the object. It was the chair for Alex, but for us, for true saving faith, it's Jesus, and so true saving faith has been used throughout uh, in, in Scripture. It's been used in different ways. True saving faith is relying upon Jesus. 
It's transferring trust from yourself to Jesus. It's confidence in the gospel. It's resting in the good news. It's coming to Jesus. It's clinging to Jesus. It's looking to Jesus. It's receiving Jesus. Think about the beggar who receives a gift that I give to him. What does he do? All he does is he puts out his hand and he receives it. That is faith. That is faith. Have you ever been rock climbing? I have. You know what's faith? Is I'm standing up at the top and I got to belay all the way down. And what do I do? I have to lean back, right? I have to trust that the the rope will carry my weight. That is relying on. That is transferring my trust in that rope, right? In the same way, your whole life is leaning back on Jesus, trusting in him. That is true saving faith. Faith is not a work that merits salvation. It is a response. It is the instrument It is Christ that saves. Our faith doesn't save. Christ saves. But our faith is what attaches us to Jesus. So, in true conversion, true conversion, you need faith. Now, what is a fruit of faith? And this is the last one, and that is repentance. There is no such thing as conversion without true saving faith and repentance. I made this stupid little object here. It's supposed to represent a coin. And I just cut it out of cardboard. So you have faith on one side and you have repentance on the other. They're of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Right? So there you go. Oh, sorry, Katie. There you go. Faith and repentance. So what is repentance? What is true repentance? It's turning away from sin. From sin and to Christ. Turning from sin to Christ. And repentance consists of six ingredients. And I'm taking this from Thomas Watson. Six ingredients. The gospel medicine called repentance has six ingredients. And only six ingredients. And you need all of them. And so I ask the question, have you repented? Well, what does repentance look like? I got six things here, okay? True repentance first starts... It doesn't take place in the heart until it takes place in the eyes. So there's a sight of sin. You must see your sin for what it is. When When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, he opens your eyes to see the filth of your sin. I remember a story of an older godly man who had a son who had a temper. And he was trying to coach him and coach him. His son wasn't getting it. He didn't just see how ridiculous he looked when he would lose his temper. And so what he did is he filmed his son when he had an outburst. And then he sat him down. And he showed him the video, and, and his son just, just demoralized. Because he saw what he looked like, right? He saw his sin. That's what happens when you truly repent. You've got to see your sin for what it is. There's a conviction there. Like the prodigal son in Luke 15, it says, But when he came to himself, when he finally saw his sin, the filth of his sin, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here, and I hunger. Have you seen your sin for what it is? The second aspect or the second ingredient to this gospel medicine is sorrow for sin. There's no such thing as a repentance without sorrow. Repentance doesn't take place in the heart until it takes place in the eyes. And when your eyes see your sin, they begin to pour forth tears of sorrow. Psalm 38, 18, I confess my iniquity and I am sorry for my sin. Now, I must give you a word about this because you could be sorrowful for the wrong reasons. <laughs> you could be sorrowful because you got caught. Or you're sorry for the consequences that you now have to go through. Right? I remember 
<laughs> as a kid, when I got in trouble and I knew I was getting a spanking, there were many times when I would try to cry to manipulate my parents to not give me one, right? You guys know how this works. You guys know how to get out of discipline, right? You try to, I try to act like I'm so sorry, but no, it's not true. It's not real. See, there's such thing as worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Godly sorrow sees your sin, that you sinned against God, and then your heart breaks over it. Some of you, you might weep. Some of you, you might not. I'm not, I'm not so much of a crier. There's been definitely times when I have. But there is a sorrow for sin. The third ingredient then is confession of sin. So repentance starts in the eyes, then it moves to the tongue, where we acknowledge with our words and our wrongdoing. When we sin against the Lord or against someone else, it's not enough to feel sorry. I feel bad about it. But the Lord calls us to confess our sins, to acknowledge them, to say them. Uh, Psalm 32, 4, I acknowledge my sin to you, O Lord, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and he forgave the iniquity of my sin. When I was a young kid, my mom would train me, my parents would train me, that whenever I sinned against my siblings or against someone, it was definitely not enough to just go up to them and say, sorry. <laughs> you know, you do that. Go say sorry, sorry. No, no it's, it's, it's not real, right? What I had to do is I had to go up to them and I had to confess to them, I apologize for hitting you across the face. That was unkind and I was wrong for that. I was wrong in admitting, confessing, will you please forgive me? There's a confession there, right? The, the sorry is not true confession. That is false confession. Our confession must be from the heart, in other words. It has to be from the heart because we see our sin. We see what it's done. We see the consequences of it where we're sorry for it and we confess it. The fourth ingredient then is shame of sin, So repentance starts in the eyes, it moves to the tongue, and it works its way down to the heart. Have you ever been embarrassed before? I have. My sin's embarrassing. I remember when I got caught cheating on a test in front of my whole class. I got called out in front of everyone. Yeah, shame and guilt, but I deserved it, right? That was normal. If I didn't feel shame for that, I would say something's wrong with me, right? Just shame, like just shameless, But true repentance, it starts there. You should feel shame and disgust over your sin. And in the same way, when we repent, there is always a sense of shame. Now, we don't sit there and wallow in there, but it's there. Why? Because our sin was seen by God and was against him. Ezra 9, 6. Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up the heavens you're shameless over your sin you no shame you need to cry out to the lord to convict you and to convert your heart fifth hatred for sin the fifth ingredient we know true repentance is taking place when you find yourself loathing hating and even being righteously angry over your sin (laughs) luther used to just like just curse at himself when he would when he would sin he would wrestle in prayer he hated his sin <laughs> what are some things that you hate in this life how about some foods what are some foods that you absolutely loathe cottage cheese cottage cheese 
I should probably not talk about this too much. My wife being pregnant has many aversions right now. And so even the smell of coffee will produce a loathing and a hatred that is so fierce that I have to either sit outside to drink my coffee or not drink it at all. <laughs> it is sacrifice. Pregnancy has been very hard for me. You know? it's, it's, been, it's been a hard road, man. <laughs> right? I remember when I was eating a piece of chicken and I, you know, sometimes you bite on something hard and you're like, what is that? And I, you could hear it when I did it this one time with Caitlin. I was like, I think I just felt the beak and she started immediately to gag. Like, loathing, right? And, and it's funny, but there's a response to sin that should be like that guttural, that instant, like a hatred for it, a loathing of it, a disgust for it. Ezekiel 36, 31, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that they were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. I love what Spurgeon says. Look to the cross and hate your sin for sin nailed your well-beloved to the tree. The last thing, the most important thing is turning from sin. So repentance starts with the eyes it moves to the tongue, then to the heart and then your whole being, your person causes then turns from your sin and turns to Jesus for grace and mercy. Listen to this verse, Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and will abundantly pardon. A great example of turning from sin to Jesus is seen in the prodigal son story. Right as soon as he realized his sin, he saw it, he had sorrow for it, he confessed it out loud that he had sinned, he felt shame and hatred for it, and then lastly, it brought him home. He turned, and he ran home to his father. He truly repented, and he turned home, and you know what he found? He didn't find a disappointed father. He found a father running after him, loving him, embracing him, kissing him putting the robe upon him, the ring, throwing a party for him. See, when you repent of your sin, you will only find the loving embrace of Jesus Christ when you do so. Have you turned to Jesus? Have you been converted? And so it's, it's, it's interesting because when the prodigal son turns from his sin, what is he doing? He's putting his faith in his father to receive him. So faith and repentance go together. And as you turn, you do so in faith. Because repenting from your sin is at the same time trusting in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to save you from your sin. And so have you repented? Have you believed? Have you experienced this life change? In order to be saved, you must believe in Jesus, repent from your sin. But do we just do it one time? Believers, this is where it applies to you. Our lives are a life of faith and repentance. We do it constantly. We're constantly turning from our sin, constantly turning back to Jesus. See, God's holiness is why we must repent, and God's mercy is why we can repent, right? And so have you been converted? Have you been changed from the inside out? This doesn't happen all the time instantly. Sometimes it's gradual. 
So I don't want you to think, well, I don't have a testimony like that one kid, guy who was an, a drunkard, alcoholic, adulterer, murderer, and he came to know Jesus. I don't have a crazy story like that, but I, I, I gradually see change in my life. If you remember when we do baptisms, what's the third and final, not the final question, the third question we ask? How has God changed you since you've come to know Jesus? Have you experienced that? Can you answer that? And this change is wrought by the Holy Spirit who works through you to work faith and repentance in you so that you can't boast. So if you're like, I haven't believed, I haven't repented, what do you do? Cry out to God to give you repentance and faith. And guess what? That's a prayer that he has never not answered. He will give you faith and repentance. Believers, when was the last time you repented of your sin? We need to do it constantly. And when was the last time that you've looked to Jesus? We live by faith. And lastly, this is the message we preach to the God. Uh, the, uh, this is the message we preach to the lost. We don't get into the doctrine of election and, and all these, the Trinity and all these deeper truths. We preach conversion. Have you repented? Have you believed? Trusting that the Holy Spirit will work in them, like I'm doing right now. Come to Jesus and receive salvation. In Jesus' name, let me pray. Father God, thank you so much for this opportunity to preach. I love you with all my heart. Lord, we confess that salvation is all of grace from first to last. And you are such a gracious God. And you hold out forgiveness and eternal life in Jesus And whoever so believes will not perish but have eternal life. And so I pray that if there are people in here that have realized they have not repented, they have not, they have not really seen their sin, they don't have sorrow for sin, they don't have shame for sin, they haven't confessed it, they don't confess their sin even when they're wrong. And they don't have a hatred for it. They haven't turned to you. I pray that you would work that in them, that they would come running to you, that they would trust, that they wouldn't just say, oh, I know that that chair can hold me, but that they would come and sit in it, that they would not just say, I know Jesus came and died, but that they would trust in him, give their lives to him by resting in and clinging to him. God, we love you. I'm relying on you to work salvation and those who haven't believed. In Jesus' name, amen.